0: Better way to this. Let me show you a better way. And we are live, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to episode three thousand one hundred and nine of the survival podcast. And I uh I I let something go by yesterday without celebrating it. Yesterday was our fourth. 14th anniversary at the Survival Podcast. Survival Podcast was born on June 20th, 2008, in the midst of a financial crisis uh, about to happen. Here we sit uh, 14 years later, I think, in the beginning stages of a long, slow financial crisis of many facets. and uh, That's what we're going to be talking about today, dealing with the coming hard years Today, I, I, well, I kind of want to drive home with this is I don't think we're in for like the end of the world as we know it, the way I think most people pontificate this type of thing. And I also don't think that we are in for a conventional recovery the way many people, many financial people, even people I, you know, generally agree with are forecasting now that eventually there'll just be this, you know, typical recovery. I think we're in for, you know, the term rolling blackouts, right? Like in California where they have these rolling blackouts and brownouts. And I've, I've kind of said this, but I've not used that terminology before as we've been going through this entire thing since the whole COVID thing started. that Yeah, that's what we're going to see. Like there's a problem and it itself begins to correct. And then there's another problem and it itself begins to correct. And there's another problem. And I do think that a lot of this is by design and I think a lot of it is also due to policy and I think a lot of it is due to money printing and I think a lot of it uh, is due to conflict in the world and I think that a lot of it is due to intention, i.e. the Great Reset, and I think a lot of it's due to incompetence in human nature. And I think whenever we try to pin it down to one thing, then we get ourselves in trouble. If it's all, you know, Satan Schwab, right, Um then we get ourselves into trouble. If it's all the Great Reset, then we get ourselves into trouble. If it's all uh, a desire to take liberty from the American people by the American government, we get ourselves into trouble. If it's all the fact that we printed, printed like a gajillion dollars, then we get ourselves into trouble, et cetera. But that doesn't mean that all of those things aren't actually true at the same time. It's just that each one of them has only so much impact that it can have. So that's kind of where I'm coming from today. This is how today's show got created. I'm still kind of coming down off being on vacation, and uh, it takes me a couple shows to get back into the routine. You know, I come back all charged up, but I'm also kind of like still in out there land. And so I thought the best thing I could do today would be go on social media, and I chose MeWe for this because I get the most interaction there from, from the community. And so what do you guys want to hear about today? And there was some homesteading things and things like that, but most of it centered around this Concept, and there were four particular quotes. I'll read them to you now, and then we'll go through and we'll comment on them. One came in from Hitam20 in our Miwi TSPC group, and he said, "I've been trying to talk to my friends and family about economic meltdown we will be facing over the next few years, and most seem to be blowing it off or just playing ostrich. I know you can't give financial advice, but what are you doing, and how are you conveying it to your loved ones that don't see it coming?" Uh Next up was uh, Odyssey Camper on my personal MeWe page said some of the things we or our parents did to make ends meet during the Carter energy years. For example, dad used to use home heating oil with no road taxes and farm diesel in our VW rabbit. We had a waste oil heater in the garage and a coal stove in the house. Subject may be too big for short notice. It really is. If you want to go into like all the little hacks that we used at bad times in our past, uh, you know, a book I'll recommend for that right now, and you can find it at tspaz.com and my recommended reading is uh, called Ursatz and the Confederacy. I read that like three times and gave it away to somebody at one of the workshops after doing that. So during the Civil War, we had, you know, far worse than we did in the seventies as we did somewhere in between during the Great Depression. So that would be interesting, but I'm, I'm old enough that I remember the seventies and early eighties enough to kind of remember what my father did. And it's not what you would think. Some of you would know, but most of you, if you're new to the show and haven't heard me talk about uh, my dad's nature, then it's probably not what you think. It's not anything like what's written here. Uh, then we had one come from St- Tim Stanley, also in the MeWe group. He said, don't know if it would make a good show, but how to deal with burnout, personal and political. Everything just keeps coming one after another with no break in between, which I guess is by design. I, I think I agree with that mostly. Uh, how do you disconnect daily for longer periods of time? How do you take a vacation and then regenerate with everything going on, uh, and so much stuff happening today? Is my, that sound in the background is my dog Charlie drinking water out of the fish tank. Come on bud, give it a break. There's, I know there's water in your bowl, I just filled it. (laughs) That's why that level in that lower tank keeps dropping. Anyway, and uh, then Mike Fitz, also on me, we said, the ability to buy as much of any cut of pork or chicken is an anomaly of modern agriculture. I moved to our homestead and wanted to tractor chickens and free-range pigs. With non soy or GMO feed, it's an ungodly expensive and almost impossible to find now. I'm shifting to sheep and lamb because I can grow grass. I'm still doing American guinea hog, but pairing them way back and won't be doing pork at a production level. I think there's a lot to unpack with that. It fits right in with the rest of the stuff. So we'll get a little bit of that stuff on as well today. Before we do, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today. Sponsor of the day number one today is the dog continues to distract me is JM Bullion. You guys know I am bullish on Bitcoin. It is the number one place I would be putting my surplus capital now, but I have not turned away from traditional asset protection through things like silver and gold. And when I'm going to buy silver or gold, I buy it at JM Bullion. And here's why I think you should. If you're an MSB member, you get a discount. Who gets you a discount? I get you a discount. Silver and gold, are you kidding you know how thin the margins are there, but I get you a discount if you're an MSB member. They've been with us as a sponsor for nine freaking years, guys. That's a long time. They have better prices than Monix, Apmex, all those other people out there like that, the ones you – Lear Capital. I even had Lear Capital basically beg to be a sponsor. I told them to go screw because they wouldn't give me the name of, like, their CEO or their president, which I have with Jam Bullion – uh, where I can rectify any problems if they happen to path, path, pop up. And on all your orders, you're going to get free shipping. So I don't know why, honestly, you would go anywhere other than JM Bullion. Uh, next up today, I want to talk to you about Ridge Wallet. That's right, Ridge Wallet. They've been a sponsor now. Geez, it, it seems like it's gone really fast, but uh, I think we're talking like five years uh, as, as of this December. And I thought it'd be interesting. Let me uh, pull myself back up for those on the video so you can see. This is my Ridge Wallet. This is my personal Ridge Wallet. I've been carrying this since I brought them on as a sponsor. In fact, I started carrying it before I took them as a sponsor. As part of my due diligence, I said, yeah, go ahead and send me some, and then I will, uh, I'll, I'll take a look at it and get a feel for this and decide if this is right for my audience. And as you guys saw when I showed you that, it's still in great shape after almost five years. And that's just a testament to how these things are built. It protects your identity uh, by shielding with this wonderful hard metal case from sniffers that can basically just pull the information off the RFID tags of your IDs or your credit cards and things like that. I got you a discount if you're an MSB member as well. So check them out today at RidgeWallet.com. And don't forget, again, that you do have a... Uh, a discount that you can get there. Don't, don't forget to get your discount. Sometimes people tell me that are MSB members. Jack, I'm only an MSB member to, to help you out, man. Uh, and, and provide value for value exchange. I don't really use the discounts. You know, if you don't use the discounts because you don't buy the stuff the vendors have, that's fine. Please, if you are a member and you're buying from one of my vendors, please use the discount. Not only does that return value to you, which makes you more likely to stay a member, but it also tells my, my supporting vendors that do discounts, it's worth being in the program. Otherwise, how would they know that you bought because you're a member? Anyway, with that, let's, uh, let's dig on into this topic. And, uh, I want to start out with the, the, the comment that first made me decide this is what I wanted to do. And before I do, I want to tell you guys, many of you know this about me, but some some of you are newer to the show, and or you've just never heard me talk about this before. A little bit about my background. It's going to sound like it has nothing to do with this, but it, it does. I grew up Catholic, and I would call it a uh, conflicted Catholic because I had grandparents that both wanted their version of Catholicism applied to their grandchildren. And one side of the family uh, was Italian, German, and it was very Roman Catholic. What you When you say Catholic, that's what you think of. My other side of my family was Ukrainian, and there is actually a form of Catholicism called Ukrainian Catholic. And the Ukrainian Catholic Church is kind of like you take Roman Catholicism and say, that's great, but we're going to add our own things to it. And those other things are uh, flares and flavors of the Eastern Orthodox Church along with Judaism. So you get all the guilt. And I was drugged to both churches throughout my childhood. And I really never got a ton out of church, except for in Catholic mass on both sides of that. We had something called the homily, which is long on the Ukrainian side. It wasn't what's called a high mass where it was the Ukrainian. I had no idea what the guy was saying, it was where the priest just sits down and talks to you. And is I, I, I'm not a religious person today. I'm not crapping on anybody's beliefs or anything like that. But as little value as I personally gained from being part of an organized faith and as little value as I, I, I look and see it for my personal life today, as a kid, I can say that was valuable. Having someone speak from a place of wisdom, from a, a, a theology that, you know, the, despite the, the the issues I have with it, was based on grounded morals and wisdom, right, that was valuable to me, and I remember being completely miserable in church until the homily came, and then thinking, why can't the whole thing be like this? So in a in a, in a kind of sort of way, kind of sort of, not directly, I want today to be like that. I don't have my typical outline and bullet points where I'm going through. I just have these four comments, and I'm just going to try to speak from a, a standpoint of 14 years of doing this Plus, you know, my background growing up as a poor kid in the coal region and and hunting and fishing and seeing poverty when not everybody was poor and not even knowing I was poor until later to reflect on it and go, oh, that's why we live that way. So we're going to try to make this a homily today, the whole thing, right? Um, And, uh, yeah, and somebody's asking about the book I mentioned at the beginning. It is called Ersatz in the Confederacy. And if you just go to the com and search for Ersatz, which is E-R-S-A-T-Z, uh, you will find it. I think that's going to really be an interesting read for some of you guys after today's episode. And it will also make you feel a little bit better about this hard future, these hard years I think we have coming. So the first comment, again, was I've been trying to talk to my friends and family about economic meltdown and that we'll be facing over the next few years, most seem to be blowing it off or just playing ostrich. I know you can't give financial advice, but what are you doing, and how are you conveying it to your loved ones that don't see it coming? Let's start off with the loved ones that don't see it coming. I'm not. I'm not. They all know perfectly well what I think. They all know perfectly well what I do. It is now up to them to decide that they want what I have to offer. And I think the most enlightening thing for some of them is, and I've mentioned this recently, several of them over the years have said things like, well, if something goes wrong, I know where I'm going. And my response is, no, you're not. And I say that from a place of love. But I am well prepared to deal with all kinds of shit for extended durations of time for myself and for my kids and for my grandchildren Full stop. That's what I've been able to do. That's what I've been willing to do. That's what I've been a- willing to set reserves up for. Is for that group of people. Those six of us, my extended family. Nope, not happening. Sorry. You want to come here? You better be. I being I said, what do you bring it? And I will say I have put away some of what I would call refugee rations, like rice, beans, shell corn. Like you know with the for those that haven't heard me talk about this before the, the the biggest cheapest O2 absorber you can get is a hand warmer. like the stuff that you get in a little package the easy hands and you open it up and you warm your hands with it during the, the winter when you're hunting and what have you well, at the end of the hunting season you can get them on clearance like at Walmart whatever for almost nothing. And they are an O2 absorber. that's actually how o2 absorbers work. There's a chemical, uh, and iron filings inside an O2 absorber, and inside those things, and it's the exact same thing. And all it does is it causes the iron to rust really fast. Well, two things happen when that happens: one, it generates heat until it runs out of oxygen, and two, it needs, it needs the oxygen to combine with the iron to make iron oxide, so it pulls the oxygen out of the atmosphere. So I have some of that stuff, but that's it. That's what you, and you're not staying. I'm not equipped. It's here's a couple of buckets. Good luck. My extended family, that's what you're getting. And I, I've, I've gone as far as the one particular one to tell them that this is what you'll get from me because you're not super wealthy or anything, but you're not doing poorly either. And you could be doing something about this as far as their wealth. I have preached the good gospel of Bitcoin since 2014. And not just to you guys, I have also preached the, uh, the silver gospel of silver and gold since. 2009 and not just to you guys. So I've talked about insuring your wealth in hard assets and also in things like real estate, etc. And I personally do not have the time to try to shove what I've learned and what I know and, and, and what I'm practicing down the throat of somebody who's not interested. But I also thought it, an interesting form of this conversation would be to talk about why does this happen? And, and I'll tell you why. And again, it'll be one of those things again, it starts off like this doesn't really apply and it, it directly does. Let's invent a friend. We'll call him Tom since we have a Tom here in the, in the chat room. We're, we're not, we're not picking on this Tom, but we're just using his name, right? I like Tom as a name. Anybody knows that anyway for, uh, hypothetical people. So Tom it, realizes he's not really feeling well and Tom goes online and he has this, this sense, this sense that something's not right and he has these symptoms and he does a self diagnostic and he ends up convinced that he may very well have cancer. And since he's self diagnosed on the internet, there's probably equal probability that he does and does not because everybody has cancer on the internet. When you do a self diagnostic of anything. They say medical students all think they have cancer after they do their chapter on cancer, 100% of them, for a while. But let's say that there's a probability there. Now, what is the best thing that Tom can do in that situation? Tom needs to go to the doctor and say, I have these symptoms, and uh, I, I, want, I want some form of testing to make sure that I don't have some form of cancer, so that if I do... I can either accept my fate and reality if it's not treatable or I can begin treatment as early as possible if it is. We all know that's the most logical, rational, well-planned thing that Tom can do in that situation. But what do thousands, if not millions of Toms and and Terrys, because this is not limited to men, do in that situation all the time? I'll see if it goes away. I'll just wait. I'm not going to go. And and the reason they don't want to go do it, because if you went and got checked out, right, and it came back that, hey, you don't have cancer, you have acid reflux or something, it would be this tremendous weight off of you. Right? But the second the doctor says the test results are in, and I'm sorry to tell you, you do in fact have cancer, your whole world changes, and it doesn't actually change inside your head. It's already changing your body, but it doesn't change in your head until that exact moment. So people avoid looking at that which is uncomfortable. And this makes me think of a conversation I had with one of the people who have said they would come here if things went wrong that I've had to say, no, you're not. And this was a conversation quite a few years ago. And we were talking about how things can go sideways with an economy really, really quickly and how it's gradually, then slowly slowly, then gradually, then suddenly and things like that. And this person's not generally open to this. And this conversation was going better than it ever had with this person ever in, in my history of having conversations with this person. And we started talking about Argentina. And I had recently interviewed Fernando Aguirre, fair foul for those that don't by that name who's from Argentina and had got the hell out of Argentina. And I I started explaining to this individual how this man who lived like this was not, and I think this is what made it so bad for him. This guy that lived in Argentina, not secondhand information was relaying how when things went completely to crap with the currency, there were people using gold as currency and buying stuff. And they had chains that you would normally wear as a necklace And they were pricing things in links of chain. And that a guy would be wanting to buy a thing, and a guy would say how many links, and they lay it down on the table and take the tip of a knife and smack the back of the knife and cut one of those links off and then give that number of links plus the cut one to the individual who was selling the item for sale. And the second I said that, this person shut down. They shut down, changed the conversation, walked away. And it wasn't because he didn't believe me. It was because he did believe me. And we had also dabbled around with what could happen to pension funds in the future. And this person is, you know, a public servant. So their money is tied up in pension funds. And those two things collided. And I can't see this and I can't hear this because I got kids to send to college and I can't worry about this. And I don't want to know. Doctor, don't test me for that. I don't care if I have it. I'd better off not knowing. And I think that the quicker that you get to the point where you understand it is not your responsibility to make someone pay attention to you, the better off you're going to be. Because every second you spend worried about making these other people understand is one second you don't spend seeing to your own future and your own stability. You make people aware and you walk. And I'm going to tell you right now, if you think I have some special gift for this, just because I run a podcast that's successful and has been for all these years, you're wrong. My family does, and I don't not not talking about my immediate family. My family does not fucking listen to me about this shit. So what chance do you have? What chance? You know when they listen when shit goes sideways or really well. The phone rings off the hook. The text messages go nuts when Bitcoin's at an all time high. How do I buy it? And my response is generally, you probably shouldn't right now because you're not in the right frame of mind for this. Or when a freaking nuclear reactor goes ape shit in Japan or some other crazy stuff goes on and COVID pandemic start. What do I do? What do I do? All the shit that I said you should have done for all these years. And then you think, okay, Okay. You know what, though? When they calm down, now now they'll be in a state where I'm ready to help them. And then you, you kind of let them settle a little bit and say, hey, do you want to work on this now? You know what they say? You know, it's going to be fine. You know, the dog with the flames around it. This is fine. That's it's OK. What am I doing? I, unless you're really new, it, it's strange that you have to ask. I have a good stockpile of food and water and emergency supplies, the beans, the bullets, the Band-Aids, all that stuff. I have my homestead that produces food for me. I have multiple freezers. I have generators to back them up so that I don't lose food, that I have time to make transfers if one of them dies, and I never completely fill them all. And if I ever get to where more than one of them is totally full, I will buy another one even if I don't plug it in. I live primarily on a meat diet I see to my health. We're going to talk about that today. And I live my life and I build my frickin' business and I build my frickin' wealth. That's what I do. And I live the credo of this show. I live the clunkiest tagline I ever created as a marketer. But I couldn't do anything else other than that tagline. I live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. When I was in marketing, if somebody would have pitched me that as a tagline, I would just get out of my office, you idiot. You can't have a tagline that long. Nobody will remember it. It won't work. But when I built this show and I, I started developing the philosophy of modern survivalism, and I really thought about it, and I distilled it down to what it really was, nothing else fit. Nothing else fit. And so that's what I'm doing. I'm living the very show credo. Go to thesurvivalpodcast.com and go to the tab that says um, about and then articles and then go to Modern Survival Philosophy under that. And there's 12 tenants. I, I don't hold back anything, guys. I don't have anything I keep secret. I have a lot of secrets, but they're not secret. Right. The, 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 what makes them secrets is you have to pay attention. You have to listen or you don't get them. But I give it all away for free. It's all here. This is what you do. You make sure that you can eat, that you have backup to your energy, that you have backup to your medical. You get your, your yourself in the, the the best state of health you're capable of. You eat a proper human diet, which is going to be mostly meat and fat. More on that later. You ignore everything the government says you should do and you do everything that the human inside you knows you should do. That's what you do. They can announce, they're announcing a new variant. It's starting in Australia. There's a new variant. It's a highly contagious form of the um, I don't give a shit. I don't care. I live in a place where I can live my way and no one tells me what to do. That's why I live in the state of Texas. It ain't for the weather, folks. It ain't for the weather. It's for the tax environment, it's for the legal environment, it's for the freedom. That's why I live in Texas. People say, well, Texas is bad, too. It's just not as bad as where you live there, mate. I'm sorry. Right? And if there was a better place for me, I would be there. Strategic location and strategic living. That's what I do. Next. Uh, Just one more. Yeah, somebody says here pearls before swine. Yeah, I want to reiterate this. There's two places this entire, well, What? how do I talk to my blah, blah, blah come from? One, it's a sincere desire to help. I understand my answer doesn't change. But I want to talk about the probably half of the people that bring this up. You know what you are? You're the person. Your freaking house is on fire. There's flames breaking through your roof. And you want to tell your brother-in-law how important it is to have smoke alarms. There's, I would say, an equal number of people that ask this question. They're really genuinely concerned and they really want to help. And there's a whole lot of people that, well, I want this other person to do it because it'll make me feel better about it. And if they do it, too, then maybe I'll do it. You got to get on it, guys. You got to get on it. You got to get on it now. Uh, remember as we're going through this, you have things for me to comment on or questions for me at the end of today's episode, do it now. Put them in all caps. I will star them for follow-up. All right, so moving on from there, the next one I got was, what are some of the things are we, if we're I guess we're old enough, or our parents or grandparents did to make ends meet during the Carter energy years? For example, Dad used home heating oil, no road taxes, Farm diesel in our VW rabbit. We had a waste oil heater in the garage and a coal stove in the house. Um, yeah. Do you know what my dad did in the middle of the 1970s during the Carter years when everything was terrible and gas was expensive? He was up to that point a construction worker primarily, and I remember him telling me how much money he made as a construction worker in the late 60s and early 70s. And when I do the math now with the amount of overtime the guy got back then, and I look up historical salaries, my father made as much money as a damn average the average salary of like a general practitioner doctor at the time. Like the doctor you would just go see because you had sniffles or needed a physical as a construction worker. Now, you had to travel for it and whatnot, but that was the kind of money he made. Well, as we moved into the seventies and, and further along, that went away. And we ended up moving from Pennsylvania to Florida. And my father's response to an economic recession was to start a business. I'm not going to say my dad was a, a great father, but he was a smart business person and he still is today. And you know what business the crazy bastard started? Gas station and used tire shop. And, you know, running a used tire shop and a gas station is mostly a sole fire. You have like one person at any given time working for them. So, you know, the, the guy could open in the morning so he could get there a little later and then he would close the place down and they could help with all the little other things, uh, busting tires down and stuff like that. that. That wouldn't be the most profitable thing that a person could do. I know the kind of money my my dad made do, during that period of time. He was making as much money as a frigging president of the United States made at that time. Now, not all the other shit goes with it, but just the salary. By, by the time it was all over at the end of the day, in the late 70s and early 80s. That's what my dad did. He started a business, and he started it in the place where the biggest problem was. Gas was expensive. I know, I'll go in the gas business. Now, you really have to think about that strategy, right? What what that's really all about. That's about what I've taught for a very long time, guys, and that is that problems are solutions, right? But do you know what solutions are? Solutions are opportunities. Where are your biggest problems right now? Go into that business one way or another. That doesn't necessarily mean becoming an entrepreneur, but either you solve that problem for yourself in some way. If it's a food problem, you solve it with food production. Uh, or you solve that problem for other people, and you can do that as a entrepreneur. Or you can do that as a employee that really specializes in fixing that problem because there are companies that will want to address that problem that want you. And good God, if you can't find a job right now, you don't want a job. And I keep hearing from people, my job wants me to, and it'll have something to do with a mask or a, a, a jab, right? And I'm like, how many places have you applied to? I'm like what? How many places have you applied to to see if you can make as much or more money than you make right now? And if the answer is not a hundred, I don't want to hear your problem. And I know that sounds again like Jack's tough love and it is. We're in the weirdest economy. That certainly has never occurred in my life, adult or childhood, right? And I would bet if my, if my granddad was still around, he'd say, ain't nothing like the great depression. Y'all don't know nothing. But if I said, is this the weirdest shit you've ever seen? He'd be like, hell yeah. And he would, he would, he would go nuts about all the wokeism and shit. But if I said, not let that go granddad, I mean, the economics of the situation, he would, he would concede this is the weirdest thing that anybody's ever seen. You have a labor shortage at a time when people can't afford to buy food. It's insane. And it has been aggravated by the, the the mandates, right? But only so much. There's plenty of opportunity out there without mandates. Plenty of opportunity. You know, one of the good friends of the show, John Willis of SOE Tactical Gear, that's where you get these awesome shirts, these awesome shirts from, as I deal with the mirror image in the in the video there. But that's where you get these awesome shirts. Back of this one, by the way, says I'm not participating in your new normal. Or it says my new normal, and it's got a whole bunch of, like, homesteading and guns and shit on it, right? And on the front, for those not watching this, it's got a hoe and a rifle, right? Guns and gardens. Good magazine, by the way, if you want to check that, that magazine out. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's incredibly insane. And right now, if you want a job and you'll get your ass to Camden, Tennessee, John Willis will give you a job. And he will give you as much work as you can handle. They they can make more than they they can sell more than they can make. So if you want overtime, you just keep working. You want to show up on the weekend and work? You show up on the weekend and work. Can't find people. Doesn't even hire local people. You might be oh hell Well, he did. He did, and when he realized, you know, if I hire, you know, Jerry, the local young kid, who you think would be just killing himself for an opportunity after he gets paid on Friday and gets drunk over the weekend and he lives at mom's house. He doesn't really care if he gets fired from this job too. And he stays home and sleeps on the couch and doesn't show up for work. But when somebody drives their ass from several States away or across the country, they kind of got to keep their job and they get motivated and they realize what an opportunity it is. But for my grandfather, the idea that you would have a time when people were bitching about the cost of food and gas and everything else, but couldn't find people to take a job would have blown his mind. So guys, those of you that are not happy with your current employment situation, again, how many jobs have you applied for? Is it a hundred? No, shut up and get applying. And I don't care if you have a job that they don't make you put a jab in your arm or a mask on your face. If you, you should do it anyway. If you are happy with the job you have right now, you need to do this anyway, just so you know. I've had so many frustrations with my son about this. He's not a motivated young man. Like You don't even know what you're saying no to because you haven't asked what's available. Right now, you should be busting your ass if you're not an entrepreneur, okay? And you're not cut out for it. It's not what you want. I understand that. I've done a lot on it. I think it's... It's the most freeing thing that you can do. But I did a show on Bitcoin yesterday. I said it's a once in a generation, if not once in a millennia opportunity to, to see the rise of a new asset class and buy into it. This is probably a once in a generation opportunity and maybe one in multi generation. When I say generation, I mean like all the generations that are alive today from boomers to zoomers, right? Um, I don't know that any living human will ever see an opportunity like this again. Where companies are literally begging people to go to work for them. And people are complaining about money at the same time. And justifiably complaining about money. If you are an employee, this is, if not an opportunity of a generation, opportunity of a lifetime for you. Especially you guys that are like 20 to 40. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You should be raking every potential employer over the coals. And if you can make a dollar an hour more and the, the, the jobs conditions will not degrade your life in any way, then you walk across the street for a dollar an hour more and then invest that into your future. There's never going to be a time like this again, in my opinion, where people will beg you for your time and your talent and the majority of people will say, not interested. Get on it, guys. Because you know what my, gen- my, my my father's generation did in the 70s and 80s? They stood in line to interview for a job where they were going to hire two people and 75 people had to stand in that line, back to the original question. That's what my Uncle Mark did. I remember him telling me when I asked him, I said, how did you get your, he worked for a company called Nine Sinks. Like sinks you put in your kitchen, in your bathroom, and stuff like that. It was a pretty good job, too, for the area, man. It really was. And, uh, and he had a pretty good job within the job, right? So he'd been there long enough. He'd gotten to where he's doing all the undercoating work of the sinks, and they had him doing like the custom orders and stuff. And he was very highly paid for a guy working plant work like that. And it's what he said. He said, well, I, this was the 80s by then, but it was before the recovery, before the Reagan recovery. He said, I went down there, and I was going to turn an application in, and there was a line they were interviewing. And he said there were about 30 people in that line. They hired three people that week. I was one of three out of 30 that got a job. That's what they did. So we're not doing what they did. It's part of why our problem is worse. We don't have people out there that are hungry. Somehow people are getting by, and I think that can be pretty dangerous. Let's move on to the next one that came in. This one from Tim Stanley. He said, don't know if we'd make a good show, but how to deal with burnout, personal and political. Everything just keeps coming one after another with no break in between, which I guess is by design. How do you disconnect daily and for longer periods of time? How do you take a vacation and then reintegrate with everything going on when so much happens daily? Okay, Tim and everybody else that says, yeah, I feel that way. Because 95% of what happens doesn't really affect your life. Don't reintegrate with it. Don't reintegrate with it. Don't re-integrate with it. Don't integrate with it at all. You don't need to do this. Most of the shit they're telling you, you have no control over. You'll know when it affects you. It's a good idea to know it's coming, but you kind of look and go, yeah, okay, that looks like there's going to be problems in the economy. That looks like there's going to be a supply shortage in this thing. You go out and you buy some of the thing, and then you go back to your life. As for vacationing, I think your attitude has a lot to do with how well you enjoy a vacation. So I was also asked about my vacation for somebody maybe to, uh, you know, somebody wanted to know some of the things that went on. Well, I, I went to Camden, uh, Tennessee for, with Nicole and John, uh, John Willis and Nicole Sauce for the Self-Reliance Festival. That was great. I had a blast speaking there. I think it really went well. And it was what it was. Like it was impossible for me to worry about anything back here, even on my own homestead. I had a great caretaker, by the way, but uh, I, I couldn't have worried about it if I wanted to because there were so many people and so much going on, that I and I was being talked to, like so many people came out just to meet me, so that was a distraction in a good way. But then once we left, this whole Bitcoin meltdown started, and you know what I thought? Not Oh, my God, I'm losing money because I haven't lost a damn thing. If I haven't sold it, I haven't lost it, right? All I did was buy more. I was thinking, damn, I got this new podcast segment coming, Bitcoin breakout. It's on standalone. Like, I need to be doing this right now. This is the best time ever. So the market's in a meltdown and I'm like, this is the best time ever. I'm missing it. That was the only thing that pulled me back here. I'm missing the best opportunity in this space that I'm going into now ever. I guess I am my father's son in some ways anyway. Gas crisis, open a gas station. Bitcoin crisis get in get deeper in the Bitcoin business, right? But see that's 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 everything. I am always optimistic, even in the face of shit right now, and I'll save some of this for the last segment, but I'm like part of me's like miserable inside because I'm looking at at this drought this year and this heat this year and what's happening this year. And going, I'm going to have trees that I've, 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 I've babied and kept going and, and, and matured and turned into something I thought was like, it was going to make it no matter what now that are going to die this year. I can't irrigate my entire property. It's not possible. We haven't had a good substantial ground soaking rain here since last fall. And it's a hundred plus degrees today, right now at 1242 in the afternoon. I'm going to have losses. I'm thinking about retooling everything. Again, I'll talk about that at the end. I'm still optimistic as shit. Like, well, what's the opportunity in that? And I think that comes from the entrepreneurship side, guys. I think that's it comes from the entrepreneurship side. And somebody's asking me right here. Jesse says, age 41, start a business or get a job. If you have to ask, you probably should get a job. I don't need to be harsh, but if you have to ask, you're 41 years old. Should I get a job or start a business? If you were going to start a business, you probably would have. Unless. Unless. And I'm, I'm kind of hoping this is what just happened. I hope Jesse's like, fuck, Jack. Don't tell me that shit. I'm going to go start a business tomorrow. Screw that. I'm going to start my business today. That's what I hope happens when I say that, right? I don't know that it will. But it's what I hope happens. And sometimes when I throw tough love, it's because that's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for that person to be like, don't tell me I can't. If you're going to be an entrepreneur, you have to be somebody that's willing to get kicked in the balls every morning and then get out of bed. Go take your shower. Get ready for the day. Get kicked in the balls again. Then work your ass off all day long. And when you think, okay, I can take a break, get kicked in the balls again. Pretty much at least three times a day, you're going to get kicks where in the balls and you have to deal with it. That's what it takes. And you know what? It's freaking worth it too. Cause eventually that stops. And eventually it's like you develop like a ball callus, right? And you're like, remember, uh, what was the movie with, uh, Steve Martin, the jerk, iron balls mulligan? Ball Gong! It just doesn't, it doesn't work on you anymore. You're like, I got this now. Ah, there's another thing. I remember when I started TSP, the first time I had a server crash, after I had gone full-time, we're like, this is my livelihood. This is my business. Oh, my God. I, I was like, incon- I was just losing my mind. I was cooking chicken on the grill. I burnt all the chicken. I was yelling at my wife. I was yelling at the dogs. I was yelling at the phone tech guy on the phone. Now it's like, okay, server's down. We'll get it back up. Audience isn't going anywhere. It'll be all right. Hey, Tom, can you look at this? I can do it in a half an hour. Okay. I mean, I wish he would do it now, but wait a half an hour. Maybe it'll come back on its own, right? Um, entrepreneurship is a crucible. It's a crucible. And what I'll tell you about entrepreneurship, it's a one-way path for the real entrepreneur. The first success is really, really hard. The second one, if you lose the first one, is some disaster. It's not any easier, but it's usually quicker, but there's no other option. The way you know if you're really an entrepreneur is if you, if you have a business fail, that even if you get a job, it's temporary. It's like, I've got to feed my freaking family, right? So I'm going to uh, mop floors or clean toilets or whatever. But like, you're gonna take a job that gives you the time to like build another business and, or you don't even do it. You just go, like, I'll go into debt, whatever. I'm gonna build another business. You know, if I go bankrupt, you'll have nothing for you to take at this point because I'm destitute anyway, and I'm gonna build another business. And what I found is most people that are real entrepreneurs, right? That's, that's exactly what happens. They just build another business. They just build another business, man. Build another business. So I don't think there's anything you can do in your life, if you're right for it anyway, that's that's more liberating than that. As far as, like, not letting it overwhelm you, not getting just landslided with it all on a day-to-day basis, you know, I don't know what it is. Different people have different ways. Maybe for you it's read the serenity prayer the short version that they give people in a 12-step program, right? The wisdom to know the difference between the things that I can change and the things that I can't and the courage to change the things that I can. You know, I, I know that seems overly simplistic, but most things that are true are overly simplistic. That's why they're true, right? <laughs> I'm, I'm going to save that one, Jesse. I'm very excited about this. Um But, yeah, most things, that they just seem like, oh, that's too simple. And what it makes me think of is when I was young, like, I'd like to believe that as long as I was the same human I am today, that if I were 22 years old right now, I would be literally kicking doors down to companies, following my own advice, looking for a job and looking for mentorship and looking for a way to build, because that's what I did. In the mid-90s, which, by the way, wasn't that great. It was better than this on the overall economics. But actually, I'm going to tell you what. Like, it wasn't as easy to get a job in 1994 as it is in 2022. It was hard to get a shitty job in 1994. I mean, like a shitty packing boxes and a warehouse job. It was competitive to get a job doing that in 1994. Here they're like, let me put a mirror in front of your mouth. Oh, there's fog on there. You're hired. Let's go. Right? Um, But I would like to believe, I would just beg t- for an opportunity. Today, I know I did back then. And when I found people that were willing to mentor me, they used to say shit, and I used to think, that's easy for you to say, because I was young and stupid. And when you're young, you're stupid. It's okay. It's part of growing up. But they would say things and I'm like, man, you know, it's so easy to say that when you've already achieved what I'm trying to achieve and I have nothing and you have everything. But when I got to the point where I began to achieve it, I realized that they were right. It was that simple. You did just work harder. You did just take every opportunity. You did just, you know, basically, I don't care if you're in school or not, you studied harder. You learned more about what made you successful. You want to be in sales, read everything you can on sales. Just tell me what to say. I can't tell you what to say. I remember this one sales mentor I had. He said, I'm not you. I can't give you a script. This isn't a telemarketing job. We hire people for $8 an hour to generate leads for that shit. You need to be the person that can sit down across from somebody. And when you're trying to close a million dollar deal, you don't sweat. You don't choke. You don't feel like if I don't have this happen, I'm going to die or something like this. You know, I remember one of my project managers and this was the same job when I first started to actually become successful in it. We were negotiating a deal that was about a million and a half dollar deal. And it's my it's my neck in the guillotine right here. It's not really his. He's just there for support. And when we got done talking to those customers and everything went fantastic, it was pretty evident unless we did something wrong from that point forward, we were going to get this deal. He ran in the bathroom and threw up. And I'm the one that, like, it's going to be my first commission check. That's more than I make in a year. Right? Like, and I'm, like, just totally chill. Why? Because i got gotten to that point where I actually believed it was more simple than it sounded. Friends and neighbors, I promise you. It's more simple than it sounds. Just let go of everything that you cannot control. Just let it go. I, I think that we live in this place. I've talked about this before where there's this fear that if I don't pay attention, something bad will happen. Thanks for the super chat, Mike. I really appreciate that. Uh, Mike says, welcome back, Jack. I missed you last week. I missed being here last week. That's kind of where I am with this, right? You know? But yeah, let go of what that which you cannot change. Let it go. It's not just the wisdom to know that you can't change it, but it's the willingness. Do what you can and then let go. You'll find yourself being so much more productive. And Tim, who asked this question, it is by design. Again, what do they call... All the news, all the TV shows, all the print media, all the planned social media, what do they call it? When they all sit down in their expensive suits and their self-important attitudes and they discuss it, what do they call it? They call it programming. Green Country Agroforestry, thank you thank you for the $5 Super Chat. I appreciate that. They call it Programs. Michelle 1776 says they call it programs. They call it programming. It's programming. You are a computer. More accurately, you are a meat and bone water suit run by a computer that's about three pounds. It's made of fat in your skull. That's your brain. That's your computer. And that means your computer will be programmed every day, every second, Every nanosecond, programming is going into your brain. I'm programming you right now, but you choose. You're the lead developer. you got to think about it this way. Your body and your brain is the computer, and then the computer is self-learning. The fastest, strongest, best self-learning computer that we know of in the, in the universe. Might be better ones, best one we know of. And you're the lead developer. So you have all these lackeys. And you're like, get me code for this. Get me code for that. Get me shit for this. I need this thing to do this. I need another algorithm over here. Get me, get, don't bitches Me my shit. And then they bring it to you. And then you choose to enter it or to discard it. But so many people, this is what you're doing. Everything they hand you, cold, you swallow it. You take it right into your brain. You accept it. Start rejecting some freaking code. Start writing some of your own lines of code. Start altering code even when it comes from a good coder. I would like to believe when it comes to programming your brain, I'm one of the best coders you can have working for you. I'm one of the best bitches you could have on your team writing code for you. That's what I am for some of you. I provide you what you want. right? I work for you. You don't work for me. And I'm writing you code. But it's still up to you to go, yeah, I'm going to take that line out. Screw that shit. Jack's wrong about that for me. He doesn't know me. All the rest of this looks good. Enter. And then analyze. And then modify. And then do I take more from this source? Start doing that. Start doing that, and you'll stop stressing out. Bonnie Blue, thank you for the 1999 super chat. Have I considered develop, diverting gray water from my showers, laundry, kitchen, integrating your trees? No, because of where they're at and because of what it would take to do it here. Um, if the trees were directly outside of the wall of the shower, then maybe we could do that. But that's not how things work here. Uh, is a good idea. It's just not – like I said, I'm a permaculture masochist. So I think that's a great plan for many people, and you should do just that. And wicking beds – and reed beds that then discharge, that's even better, creating a cycle of a flow downward. But that requires some elevation issues that I can't really rectify here. But that's what you got to do. Take charge of that code. Next up, this comes from Mike Fitz on MeWe. The ability to buy as much of any cut of fork and chicken is an anomaly of modern agriculture. I moved to our homestead and wanted tractor chickens and forest-raised pigs. With non-soy GMO feed, it's ungodly expensive, and now almost impossible to find. I'm shifting a sheep and lamb because I can grow grass. I'm still doing guinea hogs, but parrying them way back and won't be doing them at a production level. Lots to unpack there. I want to start out with, this is not an uncommon problem that people realize that the food that they want to produce becomes more expensive than the food that they can buy if they want to raise it the right way. However, where I want to start from is worst case scenario. If you gave me a choice, if I was hatching my own birds and raising them for meat, and I was just crossing something like uh, a Brahma and a buff Orpington to make my own meat hybrid. And I had a choice of eating Tyson chicken, Costco brand organic chicken or my chicken, but my chicken would be fed the shittiest Purina style crumbles a bag shit from the feed store down the road. Guess which one of those three I would prefer to eat? The one that I grew in my backyard, even with that feed. Because the one I grow in my backyard is not organic, but it's also not sitting in the same shitty chicken house that the Tyson chicken's in and simply being fed a different feed. It's running around, it's eating grass, it's eating weeds, it's eating insects. So the meal itself that that animal's getting is being diluted. So, Mike, pigs, I don't know if you know this or not, they eat pasture. You can't raise them on pasture, but they eat pasture. Pigs also eat fodder. And pigs eat water hyacinths. So you can keep raising your pigs, and you can drop the price. I also had the good fortune of meeting uh Billy Bond, uh, who I am definitely going to connect with, and I'm going to try to get him to come here for the November workshop, by the way, guys. They're raising chickens using uh, Jeff Lawton's chicken tractor on steroids model. They're getting throwaway food from uh, Chipotle mostly. Now I'm not going to go into it, but he talked about how you don't go to a restaurant or a grocery store and say, I want your leftovers to feed to my animals because they will tell you no. and how to dress right and everything else in his presentation. But he said, you go there and say you want the food to make compost with, which is not a lie. Because that's what pigs and chickens do. They make compost. And if you do that and you do these other things that he mentioned, you can get all the food you need. He's basically raising chickens, meat chickens and egg chickens for zero dollars. I guess less the gas it takes to go pick the stuff up. Because once you get a few places, it's more than you can use. And he's raising his pigs. He figured out the cost of raising his pigs is 25 cents a pound. So I'm just going to say there's ways to do this that don't involve being tethered to a feed store at least 100%. And we should be thinking that way. And I know what somebody's going to say right now. Well, what happens when the Great Depression 3.09 comes and you can't get that stuff anymore? Well, then you have a system set up. You do what you can with it and you eat your animals when you can't feed them and you have food when everybody else starts. And, And stop being a freaking Eeyore and a Debbie Downer and leave me alone. And that's probably not going to be the way it's going to play out anyway, because if you have resources, you will be able to figure shit out. And people will always eat food, and people will always leave garbage behind. So there will always be some supply chain, and you want to be there before it becomes something people compete for. So there's that too. But that's one side of this. The other side of this, if you are raising American guinea hogs to eat, you are a genius, because it is the best period, pork I have ever put in my mouth, period, the end, infinity. I was pretty opposed to the American guinea hog as a meat animal because of how long it takes to finish one and how much of the finished animal is lard until I ate one. And I said, my God, this is the best thing on the planet to eat. If you are raising it at production levels to sell to other people, I think you hate money. I think you hate money. One more time. I think you hate money. I do. I think you have a total hatred of money. I've done the math, and I'm going to tell you right now, if you're raising guinea hogs and you are capable of making daddy guinea hog and mommy guinea hog make baby guinea hogs, the most profitable thing you can do is save a few of them, eat, eat them, get with some other people that do the farrowing process and trade some stuff for some genetics to keep your genetics diverse, and sell the baby hogs to people that want to grow a baby hog because they want to pet it They want to look at it or they want to eat it too. You will make more money producing the piglet and selling the piglet than you will growing the piglet into meat and selling the meat into the market, at least for now. We have not developed a market where like high-end chefs and shit are like, dude, you know what I want to do? I want to base my menu on American Guinea Hog. If we get there, we get people like Tim Love and Guy Fieri and shit like that, like specializing in Guinea Hog pork. Damn it, we can make that boutique market work. We're not there yet. It is a pig you grow for yourself, and if you want to grow it on nut mass at all, you need the right place to do it, and that's how they were traditionally grown because they were grown in the northeastern woods where there's so much nut mass you can always finish them on it. So if you're not there, you're going to have to figure out how to feed them. I also want to agree, though, with Mike that the ability to buy as much pork and chicken as you want is an anomaly of modern agriculture. I would say that is true with the level of distribution that there is of that. In other words, I can drive five miles down in the Lake Worth here. Maybe it's 10. I don't know. And I can go to an Albertsons, and I can go in there and buy a package this big of pork chops right now. I can get in my car, and like I just did, and drive all the way to Tennessee, to small town and go to Food City, which I didn't know was a grocery store that's actually a chain until I went there. But I can go to Food City and I can buy a great big package of freaking pork chops there. There's been some shortages here and there. But, yeah, I mean, pretty much wherever I go, I can do that. And chicken, even more the case. And so I don't think there's ever been a time in history where meat – in particular, those two forms of meat were as cheap and readily available in as many places as they are right now. There's a couple things that made that happen. One was the industrialization of the entire process. Two was the the advent of, like, refrigerators, freezers, and motor vehicles. So we only have a period from about... Honestly, it's not even the 1930s. It's more like the late 30s into the 40s. It's really post-World War II forward where it could even be this way, where the average home had a stove and a freezer and a car and the average grocery store had, you know, big giant walk-in freezers and trucks delivered all their shit. So it's a pretty short period anyway that that could be done. But I think if we go back into like, even like medieval times, right? Medieval times, let's get the knights like jousting and shit like that. If you go back and you read, not even medieval times, you go back into like the 1700s, read some of the correspondence between one of the people that the liberty community idolizes, Mr. John Locke, and some of his contemporaries, and you'll see that they had a problem. He wasn't quite the uh, pro-libertarian guy that a lot of you guys think he was. They were pretty concerned about how the peasants were unmotivated. I remember reading one of the letters between Locke and... I don't remember if it was one which direction it was going, but the basic problem was, how do they get these friggin' peasants to move to London and work in the factories when they know they're gonna inherit their parents' land? They kill a few pigs a year. They grow enough grain to feed the pig and have some bread at dinner every night. They go out in the streams and catch the fish. They pick the shit up that falls off the trees and eat it. They have their Family compounds and their little cabins that they've had for generations. These houses they build last forever. How do we motivate those, those guys? How do we get them to work? They're, they're lazy. So I think the idea that everybody was starving before this modern Marvel is ridiculous. It is the movement of human beings into small masses of land and destroying the autonomy of the individual and in the community that has created this situation where we're dependent on basically the tit of the industrial food production system. And you can debate, right? You can debate, did the system create the dependency or did dependency create the system? And I'm going to tell you, I think it's a little bit of both. I think it's a little bit of both. I really do. Um, now, The other side of this, I actually agree with Mike more than I disagree. As I think about possibly completely changing my approach here on the property, like the aquaculture stuff, all the aquatics and all, that's staying. That's that's the thing that's worked the best for me. The birds are staying. The birds work well. The birds do require feed, but we have found a good source of feed. It's inexpensive, and with all the other things they eat, it's half the expense it would be if they were only eating it. Uh, especially during the summer because that's when all the aquatic vegetation, I just throw big giant piles of, to them and they love that and they get lots of protein from it and everybody's happy. I probably am going to add some large breed chickens and start making my own meat chickens. But I sit here and I think about going to something like lamb. I, my property's not big enough for cattle and putting in a bunch of fodder trees and maybe even completely redoing my food forest because I've determined on this property really what I need is straight lines, fodder trees, reliable irrigation, lots of shade for animals to graze underneath and then grow those. Like here's, you know, I always tell you guys, right? If you're, if you're going to go in a permaculture design, never let your first design be your own property. Go design other people's property so you don't have an emotional attachment. I think I did a good job trying to make this work. I was pretty experienced by the time I designed this property and the design is solid, except that the property sits on a rock outcropping and we only have a few inches of dirt. And then you get a year like this and everything starts dying and you have to irrigate for it to survive. And anybody that tells you you don't is an idiot or they're ignorant. You can pick which one it is. I'm sorry. And I have a very well-known permaculturist who keeps getting on me about irrigating at all here. And I'm like, you don't know what the F you're talking about and everything you're saying would work 35 miles Southeast of here where it's all black clay and it goes down 35 feet before you find a rock. It would work there. It doesn't work here. You don't know what you're talking about. You haven't done this. So I look at this and I think maybe that's maybe more the approach I should take. And when I look at it and I say, well, Jack, what if somebody that is as good as you was doing what you're doing right now here and you didn't live here. And you listened to them and you said, ah, rock, blah, blah, blah. But then you came here and you picked up a shovel and you checked out their claims and you went, holy shit, this guy is right. This place sucks. And you looked at the rain records for this year and went, yeah, you know, you're going to have to irrigate, you're going to have to do all this stuff. What would you advise them to do? And I would probably advise them to go with a fodder tree model and some form of ruminants as their primary source of food production, especially when that person said, oh, by the way, like – Three years ago, I went full on carnivore, ketovore, and I pretty much don't eat any fruit or nuts or anything like that. A little handful of nuts here and there. Not enough to make it worth growing them. And I live off animals and meats and stuff that came from things with a face and a little bit of vegetables here and there. Dude, what are you doing? Like, I would tell me to change what I'm doing. It's hard to do once you've put in all the work, though. I got three big swales over there. What am I going to do? Fill them back in? Might sound like heresy. I don't know. Maybe I got a other pasture that's set up ideally for this with irrigation already. I'll probably start there to see how it works. And because I have concerns about like having, you know, a roving band of hair sheep run, wandering around in the rest of the property, eating all the other things I don't want them eating. We'll see. But I, I do think that we are moving more and more toward people understanding that the beauty of the past was that people raised the animals that they could feed. And somebody's mentioning rabbits and, you know, that's a thing. You got get my wife to eat rabbits. Not sure she will. I'm sure I can get her to eat lamb. If I just put it on the plate and tell her it's a steak, rabbits, pretty obvious. I like rabbits, but they, they fall in the same place. Don't they? Like I can literally irrigate a fairly small patch of lawn and diversify the hell out of it with forbs and grasses and herbs and then get a a, a lawnmower and, and, and switch out the mulching blade to a non-mulching blade and just windrow it and just feed rabbits from that and make even little hay bales to get them through the winter. That's easier than trying to feed chickens or pigs. Now, there's a lot we can do with pasture for pigs, but I can only do so much pasture here. But I think we are moving to a place where more and more people are going to start realizing This is what they need to do. You need to take charge of your health. That's where I want to end with this today. And again, anybody has any questions or talking points for me, all caps and we'll get them starred for comment here in just a minute. I think the number one thing you can do for yourself right now, in addition to all this other stuff, and maybe more important, fix your body. Fix your body. Get healthy. And I know I sound like a broken record because there's certain things, guys, that once I've discovered them, I've never let you forget. I've never stopped talking about whether it's Bitcoin, gold and silver is wealth preservation assets, um, whether it's permaculture, is it design science, etc., whether it's food storage, etc., energy backup. Well, one more is diet. Guys, I listen to some of you guys tell me how it's so much healthier to eat the way that you eat than the way that I eat. And then I leave my home, my little compound, Fort Spirico, and I go out and I meet you guys. And some of you guys don't think I know who you are. You don't think I actually uh, pay attention enough that when you tell me your online handle, I don't remember who you are and what you've said to me. And then I look at you and I don't mean to fat shame anybody or anything like that, but I look at you and I go, you're not healthy. You're not healthy. And if the shit is the fan, your biggest problem is going to be your health. And when I start talking to you without trying to be a dick about it, because I can be like a hammer sometimes, I try not to always be that way. And I start talking to people and I I start asking about their lives. I start hearing about medications that they're on. And I know that some people are on medication because of some genetic issue or something like that, but 90% of the time I'm like, you know, if you weren't a hundred pounds overweight, you wouldn't have to take half of that shit. And so what do we need to be eating to be healthy people? And the answer is meat and fat. And we need to be getting more of our calories from fat than we do from lean protein. And this is the interesting thing about this. It actually solves so many problems. It's the easiest thing to grow. It's the thing you can grow in the most diverse ecosystems as far as where you can do it. You can go from the tropics to the freaking daggone freaking Arctic Circle. The further you go north, the more of a carnivore you kind of have to be by design as a hunter-gatherer, right? So it works everywhere. And it works physiologically. Go back and look at some videos of Jack Spirico in 2016 and tell me it doesn't work. And then pull back this video up right now today in 2022 and tell me it doesn't work. But it solves other problems. Where do I get feed? It's a cow. It eats grass. Do you see any grass out your window? Yeah, it can eat that. Now, even if that grass is not available for your cow or your sheep or your other ruminant, it's there. Do you see chicken feed out your window if you're not at your homestead? Do you feel what I'm trying to explain to you? Right? The food that a ruminant eats is everywhere. We have a multi-billion dollar industry that grows it in the front and backyards of Karen's and Kyle's. It's the best, most nutritious food on the planet and its food is out your front door. So it's, it's actually the cheapest. They, you know, it's expensive. It's, we made it expensive. If you ever come here to Fort Worth, I encourage you to go down. To Old Town Fort Worth, the stockyards, when they do the uh, the cattle roundup, which is like 20 longhorns walking down through the town square. And they go in a circle, and they go back to where they started. They're like the most pampered cattle on the planet. They really are. But you'll hear this old man tell you a story, and he'll tell you a story about how after World War II, not World War II, sorry, the Civil War, there were so many cattle in South Texas that they were literally feral all over South Texas. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to South Southwest and South Central Texas. It's not exactly the lush, living Great Plains. It's a tough place to make a living. But these giant cows just wandered around there and ate shit and survived, everything from grass and forbs to freaking mesquite pods. And they made a living off the land. And there were so many of them, because so many people had left due to the war and the war effort, And there was so much like open land ranching back then that like no one there was like nothing was branded anywhere. Like there's just freaking wild longhorn cattle everywhere in the 1860s. There's a problem. There's no dad gone way to get them from you're talking like west of San Antonio up to like Fort Worth, which is where the stockyards are, which where there was a very primitive market. Now, this is 1860s money, but it should still make an impact when I tell you this story. The, the value of a cow, if you just went out and got one and brought it into whatever little town there was around San Antonio at the time, was a dollar. On the hoof, these are big animals, guys. I don't know if you've ever seen a longhorn. These are not your little Dexter cows. These are big animals. It was a dollar. If you got it all the way to Fort Worth, you for a prime one, you might get five bucks. Now, even in 1860s money, that's a cheap cow. And they developed this entire network to do these drives and bring the cattle to Fort Worth. And then they developed a a, a a trail up into Oklahoma where you could actually get cattle on the rail cars. And then they eventually developed the rail system to bring the, the trains all the way into Fort Worth and load them there. And then the cattle market took off and Fort Worth developed. But multiply it by a hundred. Imagine being able to buy, and I don't think we're a hundred X from there, right? But just, you could buy a longhorn steer. This is a, again, this is a big animal. This is bigger than a bull elk, right? For a hundred dollars. How many would you buy? Probably one a year because you can't use more than one a year. With nobody looking after them and nobody caring for them. Ruminants are the cheapest food humans can grow, because I want to drop another term on you, American bison, over 50 million of them, self-regulating system. Most fertile plains in the world until we screwed it up by killing them all. So we can recreate that. So now we have the most nutritious food and the cheapest food being the same food that eats the food that grows on the ground naturally, plus we can supplement with things like fodder and stuff like that, and then it makes us healthier and if we scale it down, because I don't know if you've ever butchered a cow, a whole cow, it's a process. it's hard. A lamb, a mature lamb, so they're obviously not mature, they would be a sheep and'd be mutton instead of lamb, but I mean a lamb of harvest size, is about the size of a big deer. Do you know how fast I can take a deer apart? about 30 minutes. I can do it quicker, but if I want to make it look nice, it takes 30. It takes me about an hour and a half because I like, right? I like to do it. I enjoy it. I drink a beer. I listen to some music. I contemplate it. I appreciate it for what it is as I take it apart and break it down. You grow a couple of lambs a year. You're good. And then somebody mentioned rabbits. Again, you learn to do a rabbit. You can basically cut a hole in its back and pull the fur out and yank it out if you're not trying to save the hide. We can restore so much of nature and the nature of mankind with this system. And I think more and more people are going to move that way. Um I'm going to talk a little bit here because I was asked about John Pugliano's email recently. I asked him if he was doing okay if somebody – uh Somebody, uh, kidnapped him or something because he said that most of the, uh, the price appreciation right now can be attributed to conflict in Ukraine. And I love John and, uh, I get a lot of advice from him and I, I, I really respect his opinion. And I don't think he's wrong, but I don't think he's right on that one. I want to talk a little bit here as we finish about what the real problem is with inflation. He said, do you think it's M2? I think it's M2. I think it's M3 too, John. Yes, I do. But I don't think it's only M2 and M3. But if you're going to blame all the shit that's going on right now on Putin's price hike, and I'm not saying John was, I'm just saying like that's the, that's the whole story from the media and the White House and shit. It's Putin. It's Putin in Ukraine. I'm sorry, but like shit had gone parabolic in price before that. Did it make it worse? Yes. And I think this is where we have to understand something about inflation. When I say the word inflation, most people would say he's talking about printing money. I have taught for years, more than a decade now, I am not only talking about the printing of money when I talk about inflation. Inflation is a multi-pronged thing, and supply and demand is part of inflation. It's not its own thing off somewhere else. If you have everything going great, and you have one thing that goes into short supply, and that goes up in price, I wouldn't actually call that general inflation. I would say that really is supply and demand. But when you have overall appreciation in cost, and you say, well, it's a supply-side issue. Well, it's often a supply-side issue because there's so much money competing for a declining amount of goods. So what we have to understand when it comes to inflation, guys, cows. Inflation is a multi-policy animal. So there's no reason for anything you're buying today to cost mu- maybe a little bit, but not much more due to a conflict in Ukraine in of itself. If the Russians and the Ukrainians are fighting, it might put some pressure on some grain prices, but mostly for another part of the world, not for the United States of America. Until we're like, hey, I know, let's go stick our nose in that. So that inflation is directly attributable to our response to current administration policy in response to this, not to this itself. I hope that makes sense. In other words, we could have done nothing. This war would be over. Putin would not have all of Ukraine. He'd have the piece of Ukraine he's probably going to end up with anyway. The United States has excelled at throwing away hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars, to lose wars. We've gotten really, we're probably better at spending money to lose wars than any country in the history of the world. So our response to that is a problem. COVID is the problem. Well, no COVID is not a problem. Our response to COVID is the problem. Had we done nothing, had we done nothing, the hospitals would have been like, this really sucks, but it's a hospital. Things really suck at hospitals sometimes. You have ebb and flows of disease cycles. If we had done nothing, we wouldn't have overloaded the hospitals. That's a myth. We all know that now. We can look at the places where they went draconian and the places they didn't, and there wasn't a hill of beans of difference, except in islands like Australia, and now look what's happening to them. Like I said, everybody's going to deal with it sooner or later. You're better off dealing with it now. So all the shit that happened around COVID was a policy issue not a, a, an on-the-ground reality issue. And until you look at inflation as being a policy issue, not just a how-many-units-of-dollars issue, I don't think you can fully appreciate. I'm not going to say understand, but I don't think you can fully appreciate inflation for what it is. And then there's another piece to inflation. It's what's called the velocity of money. And people think when you say velocity of money, how fast the money changes hands. It's part of it. Remember, we're in a fractional reserve system. Velocity of money is two things. How fast the money moves and multiplies in the economy. Every time there's a loan, every time there's credit extended, money increases in supply. There is truth to when you have fall in asset prices and, you know, liquidity Come into play and people have to cover losses in liquidity when you pay off debts in our system, just as debt creates money, paying off debt or defaults on debt deflate money. There is a reduction in the M3, but go look at it. It's not reduced yet now, is it? Now there's another thing at play here. This is why I said, and people really disagree with me back when I, when this all started, we will not have hyperinflation. I'm still saying that. You're like, Jack, we have hyperinflation. No, look up the definition of hyperinflation. Hyperinflation is not whatever you decide it means today. It's not everybody has a different definition of it. In economics, there is a specific definition where you use the term hyperinflation. We're not even close to it. What we have is paralyzing inflation, massive inflation. The reason I said we wouldn't have hyperinflation is one, John's point of the hole sucking the money back in, which, by the way, I said in the beginning, too. But it was also the total amount of debt that exists. If you had printed $10 trillion when the M3 was $4 trillion, you'd have got hyperinflation. But you get to a certain point where you have so much money already in circulation, so much items of account, units of account out there, that the amount it takes to overwhelm that system keeps going up as well, the portion. It, it's, it's the exact opposite of the stock market. Back in the 1980s, if the Dow Jones dropped 300 points, people were jumping out of windows. What happens if the Dow Jones drops 300 points today? No one even cares. It doesn't even mean anything. Why? Because the underly, the percentage is so much smaller. It works the other way too, guys. So John's got a point. But I think that when, when you think this is a short-term problem we're in, I think it's, it's, it's optimism for the sake of optimism, maybe. This is going to be a multi-year problem, a multi-year unwinding, and we're not even halfway through with it yet, and it is going to get worse before it gets better. And guess what? Friends and neighbors, that is Great. I really encourage you to start watching some TV shows. Uh, it's either history or learning or wherever. I don't know who has it, but the built America series, the men who built America. Yes. JP Morgan is a scumbag. That's not why I'm telling you to watch it. Even though one of the episodes is going to be about JP Morgan. Yes. A lot of the people that built our current, like the food that built America. That's like an offshoot series. That's one. I actually enjoy more. Um, You know, some of the food that these people built or why there's there's people walking around and they weigh 500 pounds and say they can't lose weight. Twinkies and ho-hos and ding-dongs, oh my. But what you get out of that series is where the greatest wealth was created in this country. It was created in the pre-Depression era, the Depression era, and the World War II era. Even if it took decades to occur and fulfill itself, its genesis was in that time period. It really was. Or it was the, the era of the, you know, post, post antebellum after the civil war. When everything falls apart, the people who remain calm and rebuild reap the rewards. Not every generation gets the opportunity to take part in rebuilding. Not and and what happens is later on you're like, man, I wish I was around back then, because I would either you are or you wouldn't have. It's never been easier to do than right now. There's tremendous opportunities right now. Tremendous opportunities, and they're gonna keep coming. Let's take a few few comments and then we'll wrap up. Um how to prep this summer for fruit trees in fall spring, zone four B. Um if you're going to need irrigation, put your irrigation in. Um, if, if you have decent soil, even decent, just basically decent soil, trees are the easiest thing you can grow. So just figure out where you want to plant them, what you want to plant and plant them. Though I'm going to say you, you said fall or spring, plant them in the fall. If you can, if you can plant trees, plant them in, in the fall, then plant them in the fall. Spring's okay, and 4B, you'll be fine, but I would always prefer, if you can source the trees you're looking to source in the fall, plant them in the fall, let that tree wake up in spring where it's going to grow, and let it start exactly when it decides it wants to start. Jesse M., who I picked on a little bit during this episode, if you missed it, I said, you know, if you were going to start a business, you would start a business, and Jesse said, fuck you, Jack, I'm starting a business. I hope you are, bro. I want to get an email from you a year or two from now that says, Jack, you're a jerk in the subject line. I love those emails. And it's going to be I wanted to say something like because of you calling me out in a live stream, I started my business the next day. And screw you. This is how good I'm doing. And you know what? It's actually a pretty good chance that'll happen because anybody that really wants to can. It'll be a matter of whether he really wants to. Lisa says, your livelihood should be so rewarding it doesn't feel like work. Monetize your passion. You know what? That's one of those things I was talking about earlier where I said, it just sounds too simple. It's not. It's not too simple. That's the truth. You can do it if you really want to. What will you work harder at than something you love? Think about that. All things being like, I'll work harder at shoveling coal even though I hate it because the guy pays me to do it. Okay, I get that. But if you're going to start a business, your, your results are going to be proportional directly to two things. One, how smart you work and how, and two, how hard you work. You can work really hard and be stupid about it and make no money. You can equate activity with, with productivity. You can do that, but it's, you're going to have to fix that anyway. So assuming you're going to fix that and you're going to spend your effort and your time on the things that are actually going to build your business, what will you work harder at? Something you hate? or something you love, something you cannot even put it down, you're so obsessed with it. There's opportunities in everything, folks. Find what you love and go at it 100%. Uh, Crystal said, fruit stands will sometimes let you take their old stuff. Did that for years until the stand closed down. That's true. Uh, Your small entrepreneurs and stuff like that will definitely give away rotted air, maybe even sell it super cheap or something. It's corporations that are harder to get waste streams from because they're afraid somebody's going to sue them. And the person you're talking to generally isn't a CEO, and they're worried they they have 20 or 30 bosses above them, and they're going to get in trouble. So the more you can do to put them at ease, and if you can find the replay of the stream from Camden and Billy's presentation, I encourage you to watch it. Again, Billy Bond, and he's probably talked about that elsewhere. Michael V says, I think the lard-based skincare products changes the American guinea hog math. Maybe. 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 That's a market that has to be built. Now, for those that don't know what Mike's talking about, I've actually switched to making my herbal salves using organic pork lard. Because if you've ever made a herbal salve, and generally we use olive oil, and then we thicken that olive oil uh, tincture. Uh, it's not a tincture. The word is escaping me now of what you're doing. Infusion, right? So you do an olive oil infusion. So basically you take your herbs, you throw them in olive oil, you heat them, You don't fry it. You just warm it, and you hold it there for a while, and you strain it off. And now you have an infused oil with all the goodness of that herb. And then if you want it to be a salve instead of an oil, which usually works better for things, we add beeswax to it, and then we can put it on wherever we we need it, like an abrasion or a scrape or something like that, with a comfrey salve, for instance. But you do that, and it works. It works great, or people wouldn't do it. But like an hour later, you're glistening still. That oil, olive oil does not go into the human skin, uh, at a a very optimal level. Some will, some won't. It will, you know, make your skin softer, et cetera, but it doesn't really go in. So only so much of the herb goes in. You do it with pork lard? A half hour later when you look at it, it's still a little bit on the surface, but not much. The, The pork fat is so close to human fat. When you put it on human skin, Assuming you're not coated with something else, that like if you put some other substance on there, right, they, they, like, it's like a sealant on your skin, it's not going to happen. But raw human skin, you put pork fat on, it goes in. And it has a lot of benefits to human skin uh, as well. So I think there's some there's some opportunity there, but I don't think that market's developed yet. Not enough to make money off guinea hogs out of the gate. And Mike's saying this because he loves guinea hogs. And Mike, by the way, is why I, I think the guinea hog is the best eating hog on the planet. He got me to eat it, and I'm like, yeah, you're right. So uh, if you can do it, do it. There is opportunity in niches. Just how aggressive are you going to be with your niche? Uh, have you looked into bre- brecy chickens or Bresi chickens? I don't even know what those are, so the answer is no. I think you should grow the chicken that you must want to grow, and they all are pretty good birds to grow. Uh I am a big believer though that if you just take two big breeds of chickens, I don't care what they are, you know, if you take a Brahma and a buff pink ten, and you've got you know hand of one and rooster the other and you cross them, you get a pretty good meat bird. And you're in that American guinea hog world. I'm not talking about growing a thousand of them to sell at market. I'm talking about growing twenty five of them to put in your freezer. Um, LH says we'll be doing two does and a buck for breeding and tractors for grow out with rabbits. Didn't all cap that, but I liked it, so I went ahead and started. Yeah, I think rabbits is a really great, great meat animal. People will say rabbit starvation. Shut up, shut up, shut up. There's no such thing as rabbit starvation in the type of rabbits we're talking about. When people talk about rabbit starvation, you're talking about people that are starving in the wilderness, eating rabbits that are starving in the wilderness in the winter. And they're not starving because they ate too much rabbit. They're starving because they ate no fat. It's not that rabbits have too much protein. That's retarded. Don't say it anymore. It makes you sound stupid to anybody that's informed. I'm not picking on LH here. I'm picking on other people. You know who you are. Um, It is the absence of fat. So if you're eating a rabbit in winter, especially a mountain rabbit, it will have almost no fat. If you're eating a rabbit you grew in your backyard, it has some fat you cook it in bacon and lard it has lots of fat right eat some avocado you'll be all right like there's never a problem with rabbit from being too much protein again what you're talking about is the absence of fat isn't that interesting when dr barry and i tell you to get 60 to 70 percent of your total caloric intake from fat that's not volume of food that's caloric intake and fat is far more calorically dense than protein michael v again says Rabbit in the crock pot till it falls off the bone. It looks and tastes like chicken and uh, like chick, CH and chicken. I'm not sure what CH is, but yeah, I, it's hard to fool my wife, man. But yeah, I agree. Like rabbit is delicious 100% of the time. Anyway, with that guys, I want to remind you, if you like the show and the work that we do, you can always help support us by doing your online shopping where, where folks say it in the, Say it in the super chat there, or not the super chat. Say it in the uh, on li- the, the live stream chat, right? It, it, it's um, tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. If you go there, you'll find all of the items that I recommend. If you see it there, I you, I own it, I bought it, and I would buy it again, or I wouldn't recommend it. Today's item of the day is one of my favorite submersible pumps. I use this guy in all of my uh, large-scale aquatic systems. This thing was on sale last month. It is on sale again. It is the Danner Manufacturing Pond Master. It's a 2,000-gallon-per-hour pump. This thing normally sells for between $130 and $150. It's on sale for 80 bucks. I hope it's still on sale because last time it came and it was on sale for 80. And then I ran it. And before I even got the episode out, it was like a hundred and it was still a deal. And then like a couple hours after the episode went out, it was like $138 again. But I have been through lots of options with pumps. Some of you have been here during the builds and you know that this is the one that has absolutely worked best for me. That's why I have standardized on it. And, when this deal came out last time, I immediately bought an extra one to put as a second backup on my shelf because the deal was just that good. I mean, literally, it's like half price of the top price. So when it's up at 150 it's not quite half off, but it's close. And it generally will sell between 130 something and $149. Um, if you need a pump, if you're going to be building a larger system and you didn't get this deal last time, get it this time because I don't know when it'll come back again. I do think we're continuing to have everything shortages in one more time. Everything I've ever reviewed, guys, is available at tspaz.com. It's just a little tab that's up on the uh, the top of the website here, tspaz, tspaz.com. But you can see all my categories are alphabetical, and you can click on any of the categories to see all the items that I've reviewed. And I have some new ones coming for you very soon. Um, I, I think that... I, I try to make the stuff that I do with the Spaz stuff valuable to you even if you don't buy anything from it so that you know what's available and you know how to evaluate anything. If you read some of my reviews, you are going to find real quickly that my review pro- – I don't mean like my review that I write for you, but my personal review, like when I'm selecting something for my household, it's very methodical, logical, and it's harsh. It's harsh. I want when I spend money to buy a thing, I want my money to be invested in my, my future and the future of my homestead. And if it is not a hundred percent value product for the space that it's in, cause some of the stuff is cheaper stuff, right? Like it's not the most expensive thing you can buy, but for the thing that it is, it's what you need. That That's my approach. And so I hope in my reviews on T-SPAS, if you read them daily or a couple times a week or something like that, you also glean not just the thing but the process by which the thing is evaluated. In the case of this pump, it had to last a long time, and it had to be easy to maintain, and it had to be quick to swap out. Standardizing is what solved the last one. The other stuff you can read the review to see. Uh, But I'll tell you, like we talked a lot about ruminants today ruminants and aquatic systems, to me, are the things that can be done in the most places for the most people to provide the most food if you do it right. And remember, that's why I'm working on that aquatics course. Again, I appreciate everybody for being here today. I hope I did a better job for you guys today than I did yesterday. My timing, to be blunt, yesterday sucked. It sucked. Um, we did talk about Bitcoin yesterday. It was the next segment in the Bitcoin breakout. I got one more of those coming. I don't know if it'll be this week or next week, but once we get into the flow of things uh I think it's next week that I have Natalie Brunel booked as the first interview for Bitcoin breakout. Once that interview happens and we have the four-part fundamental series in her interview, we'll go into a straight up four days a week. We got TSP absent crypto and Bitcoin other than a off you know a mention like you got today. Uh and, and otherwise it'll be, you know, you if you want Bitcoin. You got the Bitcoin breakout once a week, like we used to have Miyagi mornings once a week, or we still have Outback with Jack once a week. Uh, but then if you just only want Bitcoin, there'll be a standalone for that. Uh, we have a pretty cool new logo for the standalone feed that's going to have its own podcast feed. If you want to see that, if you haven't seen it yet and you want to see that, what you can do is go look me up on Twitter. If you're not already following me on Twitter, go to Twitter and look up at the Survival Pod C because they don't get enough letters to do the survival podcast. Go check it out. It's pretty cool. A little revamp on the Val logo. That doesn't mean it will change on the main website, but it will be there for the standalone feed. And because I mainly use Twitter to talk with other people that are involved with Bitcoin and Lightning, I have changed my logo on Twitter to that version of the Val logo. And, yes, guys, I know Val... The VAL logo was featured on a new Amazon series called Night Sky. This is now the third big-time production that the VAL logo has got into. We have been on Sherlock, one little quick scene. Uh, We have been on Person of Interest. Those are two big network productions, and now an Amazon-exclusive thing called Night Sky. By the way, that there's a reason so many of you have been telling me about the fact that the logo's in there because this is a freaking cool storyline. I'm not going to tell you what it's about, but you might want to check it out if you have Amazon Prime. Again, it's called Night Sky, and we are in Episode 7, in two different scenes at least, and who knows how many more times that breadcrumb will be dropped. Just a little side thing. You don't get into stuff like that unless you have an insider that's dropping breadcrumbs. And my instinct is some prop person or somebody like that has worked on all three of these shows. If it's you and if you still listen, reach out to me. If you want to stay confidential, I won't tell anybody who you are, but I would, I would love to hear from the person that has put the Val logo into three big series. That's awesome. With that guys, I'll be back tomorrow. We'll have an interview tomorrow. Uh, don't remember what the topic is. I do have it here. We're going to be talking to an independent butcher named Josh tomorrow. Hey, that'll fit well with a big part of today's show. Uh, we'll have that on tomorrow, and we will be here live with you again uh, about 12. You pull yourself up. They keep bringing you down. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month. And you never have to pay There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way